be not afraid. This is what Pope, now Saint, John Paul II said in his speech after being introduced as the new Pope in 1978. There was a lot to be afraid of in 1978. The Soviet Union was still very much a threat that seemed like it would go on forever. The previous Pope had lived for only 31 days after his inauguration. And now a non-Italian was becoming the Pope for the first time in 455 years, a Pope from Poland of all places. That day in 1978 was the first day of his 25-year papacy, and his life and example would inspire, challenge, comfort, and encourage millions around the world, would bring an end to communism's grip on Eastern Europe, and I think does encourage believers today because of the unlikely ways God used a young man from a small town in a troubled country for his purposes. Pope John Paul II was born Karol Wojtyła in a small town in Poland in 1920. He's probably the most famous, famous Polish person of all time, and he's still very much loved amongst the Polish people. Several of my relatives have his picture in their homes, and my aunt is proud to say that she met him several years ago. Here's a picture of her. When I was in Poland several years ago, I noticed a statue of him near the university he attended, and people were setting flowers all around it. I asked someone what was happening, and it turns out that this was April 2nd, the seventh anniversary of his death, and even after seven years, Polish people were remembering him in that way. He really was a superstar, and especially to the Polish people. Reading about him was a bit intimidating at times because he accomplished so much. I know that I can't ever measure up to his accomplishments, and it's difficult not to compare when you're reading about someone. The man was brilliant. He was fluent in at least eight languages and found that language learning just happened naturally for him. He was a prolific writer, not only academic essays, books and theological works, but plays and poems too. He held several doctoral degrees, was a professor, a natural communicator, and on top of all of that, he was a people person who could easily engage with presidents and teenagers, theologians, and rough-and-tumble workmen. There's some of the people that he met during his time. And he still found time in all of this busyness to take annual vacations. I found it daunting just putting this chapel message together. But something Bill Zip said during GCC really encouraged me, and I hope will encourage you too. He said, we're called to faithfulness, not to success. And more than his academic and worldwide accomplishments, Carol was faithful to use every opportunity and life experience God gave him. And we have that same call, that same God. So a small disclaimer before we get going. I know that Roman Catholic theology and practice can contradict Protestant theology, but rather than getting stuck on these issues, the goal in this chapel is to look at the fruit uh, which came from Carol Fortiva's life, to see the ways in which he was faithful servant of Christ in the places he was called to serve. So as I said, Carol was born in Poland, and there's a map of Poland. It's kind of just by Russia and Germany. And he born into, was born into a Poland which was free for the first time for the, um, in 25, 125 years. The First World War had just ended and Poland was able to establish its own government. Prior to World War I, Poland's land had been carved up between Germany and Russia. You wouldn't even have been able to find it on a map. One biographer said that his family's apartment was so close to the church that a priest with an average nose would have smelled the family dinner. 
the church virtually and physically cast a shadow over Wojtyla's home. His early life, though, was marked by tragedy. His mother died when he was only eight, and his sister died in infancy. He never even met her. Leaving Carol's father to care for Carol and his, two, and his other brother. His brother was 14 years older than himself and went away to university to be a doctor. While working as a doctor, he contracted scarlet fever and died at just 26 years old. Carol was 12 at the time. So from the age of 12 on, his only immediate family was his father. Later in life, Carol would call these years with his dad his domestic seminary because his father was a man of prayer and self-sacrifice. Carol lived in a free country for the first 19 years of his life and discovered Polish literature, poetry, music, and theater, and he gained a deep sense of national pride and appreciation. The arts, and especially drama, spoke very powerfully to him. He became very involved in acting and even formed his own acting troupe. After graduating high school, he enrolled at the University in Krakow, this is a big city, and his dad moved with him. He loved that first year, made many friends, and excelled at everything he did. He was a star, a star student, star actor, star athlete, especially skiing and soccer. But just a month into classes the, in his second year, the Nazis shut down the university. Poland had the misfortune of being neighbors to Germany, and in their trek east, the Nazis settled in Poland. They overthrew the weak and 19 years young Polish government. It was Hitler's personal goal to make it as though Poland never existed. Many of the professors at his university were either killed or sent to concentration camps. Heroically, professors started to hold underground classes, even though by doing so they were risking their lives daily. Many of Carol's friends disappeared, and he never knew if or when he would be next. He and his father tried to escape the city and Nazi occupation on foot, but after 120 kilometers of walking, 120, they heard that Russia had invaded from the east already, so they turned back around, ducking for cover occasionally as German airstrikes flew overhead. You can kind of picture the end of Fiddler on the Roof there. Theater was banned, church was shut down, not just with a 15% capacity. Religion became illegal. Priests and nuns were sent to the work and death camps, or just killed outright. The Nazis created the world's largest convent, but only because 2,700 clergy were in the Dachau concentration camp, over half of those being Polish priests and nuns. The Polish government said that all able-bodied males had to have a job, with the alternatives being concentration camps or death. Carol got a job at a quarry crushing limestone. After a year and a half of this very difficult work, he was able to transfer to a chemical plant where the work was much easier. He spent a total of four years as a manual labor. As a result of World War II, one quarter of Poland's total population and one third of its clergy was decimated. It was unimaginable evil and a stifling of all human flourishing. The picture you see is Warsaw, before the war, and then after. These horrible years were some of the most foundational in Carol's life, as he was confronted with life and death daily, and was exposed to some of the greatest evils man inflicted on his fellow man, as well as some of the greatest demonstrations of self-sacrifice. 
like a priest who gave his life for a fellow prisoner. This man was a man with a wife and kids, and he actually ended up living to tell about it. Carol was deeply touched by this example, and uh, it would help shape his idea of the priesthood, the sacrificial nature of the priesthood. A few months before his 21st birthday, he suffered his greatest loss. His father died of a heart attack while he was at work. As difficult as this was for him, his father's death confirmed to him the call that he had begun to feel to the priesthood. His biographer says, the priesthood began to loom larger as a way to live in resistance to the degradation of human dignity by brutal ideology. He was chosen personally by the Archbishop of Krakow to participate in his underground illegal seminary. He had numerous near-death experiences in this period of his life, but he views, viewed all these close calls as providential, as a confirmation of his calling to the priesthood, not as a warning sign or a deterrent. The Nazis were finally expelled from Poland in January of 1945, but their liberation came at the hand of another oppressor, the communist Russian army. The communist government would remain in power and the people would remain oppressed for another 40 years. Right after World War II ended, Carol was ordained at the age of 26. Uh, his theme verse for ordination was, he has done great things for me, from Mary's Magnificat in Luke 1. After all the losses he had suffered, he still saw God's goodness. Immediately after ordination, the Archbishop sent Carol to Rome to start working on his doctorate of theology. This was the first time he'd ever been out of Poland. He was 26. He passed his oral defense of his dissertation with 100% and received high marks on his doctoral exam, then returned to Poland and started his posting as a university chaplain. He had to quickly adjust to life in a communist country. Communism, in theory, was a sharing of resources where everyone worked and everyone got to eat, but lived out, it became an oppressive dictatorship with those at the top making the decisions and getting rich, and all the workers underneath them got poorer. Communism included state-sponsored state atheism, where man was a worker and nothing else. He wasn't a soul to be tended. In communist Poland, all adults had to work and work schedules and school schedules were intentionally created by the government so that families were rarely ever together. The state felt that if people were happy at home, it was a threat to their power. To further attack the family, a law was passed making abortion a legitimate form of birth control. But Carroll proved that he wasn't afraid of communist government officials, nor overwhelmed by their intimidation and brutality. He also wasn't arrogant or disrespectful in his fight against communism, but he did purposely live in resistance to it. He had to get creative, and he went to work to strengthen marriages and families by introducing Poland's first ever premarital counseling sessions. In just 28 months, he blessed 160 marriages, so that's at least one per week. He also started teaching sessions on the importance of sex in a marriage, beyond just procreation. And this was a topic priests normally didn't touch, but he thought that a solid teaching on sexuality was key to building strong marriages and families. 
One of his famous sayings about the family was, as the nation goes, so, oh, sorry, as the family goes, so goes the nation, and so goes the whole world in which we live. He held special workshops illegally, where he worked through communist doctrine point by point, demonstrating why Christianity was a better way and offered a richer explanation of life than the state ever could. He came alongside his congregation in every aspect of their lives and built a wide network of friends who together found spaces of freedom within the communist oppression. He said the duty of a priest is to live with people everywhere they are, to be with them in everything but sin. This was his ministry strategy, to walk together through the problems his congregants faced, to show them another way of being human beyond what communism said was true. He began annual camping and kayaking trips in the mountains with young adults in his congregation. And he would continue this for another 25 years, stopping only when he became priest, or sorry, Pope, and moved to Rome. These trips were times of discipleship and fellowship, where mass would be celebrated on top of an upside down kayak. The government did not allow priests to travel with their congregation, so Carol instructed the young adults with him to call him Wujik, or uncle in Polish, instead of priest. And very, on in, very early on in his ministry, he became dedicated to the practice of confession. In his words, he was a prisoner of the confessional. Carol said the confessional was where priests encountered their people in the depths of their humanity, helping the person on the other side of the confessional screen to enter more deeply into the Christian drama of his or, home, his or her own unique life. He said that if priests stopped doing this, they'd become office managers or bureaucrats. He was known for his listening and openness. No subject was off limits. Confession wasn't a one-sided, wooden exercise like it's sometimes portrayed, but Carol made it a conversation, a genuine learning experience and encouragement for the penitent. In 1958, he became the youngest bishop in Poland at the age of 38. Six years later, he was made Archbishop of Krakow and then made a cardinal in 1967. That same year, together with, our, with bishops from around the world, he participated in the Second Vatican Council. Vatican II, as it was called, was a council to bring the church into modernity, to address the new questions that non the non-Christian world, as well as the Catholic faithful, were asking. One big item to come out of Vatican II was the council's declaration on religious freedom, which Carol led. The council declared that the human person has a right to religious freedom. Freedom of this kind means that all men should be immune from coercion so that, within due limits, nobody is forced to act against his convictions in religious matters. The Council further declares that the right to religious freedom is based on the very dignity of the human person as known through the revealed Word of God and by reason itself. Nothing like this had ever been written by the Catholic Church. Carol knew what it was to live in a world without religious freedom. His friends in Poland were still living without religious freedom. He saw this great need and did all he could to prevent others from having to live through this experience. He would later write, man cannot be fully understood without Christ. 
Or rather, man is incapable of understanding himself fully without Christ. He cannot understand who he is, nor what his true dignity is, nor what his vocation is, nor what his final end is. He cannot understand any of this without Christ. Therefore, Christ cannot be kept out of the history of man in any part of the globe, at any longitude or latitude of geography. The exclusion of Christ from the history of man is an act against man. Because of his relationships with the people and his defense of religious freedom, the communist government grew to be quite terrified of him. In 1978, the then Pope, Paul VI, died. As per the protocols of the Roman Catholic Church, the cardinals, all the senior members of the Catholic clergy, as Carol was, got together to choose the new Pope. Carol was well-liked, but he was young and not Italian, so he wasn't chosen. To everyone's surprise, the new Pope died after just 31 days in office. So it was back to the conclave, and one of Carol's friends prophesied to Carol that he would be chosen as the next pope, and Carol knew that it was true even before the committee selected him. Amidst all the difficulties in Poland with the Soviet Union, he worried what would happen to his, his people if he accepted. But he accepted the decision of his fellow cardinals and was inaugurated as pope in October of 1978. His inaugural address spoke of Peter, the first bishop of Rome, and had parallels to his own feelings of concern about leaving the place he loved. He said, Peter came to Rome. What else but obedience to the inspiration received from the Lord guided him and brought him to this city, the heart of the empire? Perhaps the fisherman of Galilee did not want to come here. Perhaps he would have preferred to stay there, on the shores of the lake, with his boat and his nets. But guided by the Lord, obedient to his inspiration, he came here to Rome. His prayer on that day was, Christ, make me become and remain the servant of your unique power, the servant of your sweet power. Make me be a servant, indeed the servant of your servants. It was very clear once Carol became Pope that things in Rome would not be business as usual. He got right to work reforming the papal bureaucracy to be more efficient, less professional, and more in line with the modern world. He started hosting impromptu and televised press conferences so that ordinary Christians in their living rooms could see and hear from the Pope. He traveled more than all other popes combined to visit and strengthen Catholics around the world. I read that he traveled so much that you could go to the moon and back three times and still circle the earth something like four times with all of the kilometers he traveled. In this way, he, the world got to see his personality. He engaged his audiences with humor and candor. He wasn't stuffy. He poked fun at himself. He made people feel welcome and comfortable and his humility was surprising and genuine. One of my favorite stories I read about him was from a priest in his diocese who remembers committing a serious misdemeanor. Carol told him about the severity of the offense and reprimanded him. Carol then led the young priest into his chapel so they could pray together. And they knelt so long that this priest became nervous. Finally, Carol stood up, looked at the young man he had just chastised and said, 
Would you please hear my confession now? Stunned, the young priest went to the confessional and Carol confessed before him. He brought to light, as well, a new awareness of the conditions of Christians living behind the Iron Curtain of Communism. His first year as Pope was perhaps the most defining year of his papacy, when he was able to return to Poland for a papal visit during Pentecost in 1979. John Paul wanted to visit in May, but the government said that he could only stay for two days if he did that, or he could come in June during Pentecost and stay for nine days. That was an easy decision for him. The government tried to dissuade him from coming at all, saying things like, oh, the Pope is a wise man. He knows what's best, that it would be best for him if he didn't come. Yeah, he didn't listen to that. The government tried to contain the crowds, but he served Eucharist to millions of Poles during their nine days with him. He spoke in their own common language to a people who were oppressed, who believed the Soviet Union would be in power forever. These were the people with whom he had suffered under Nazi oppression. He sang old Polish hymns with them, laughed and cried with them. He said, during these few days that I will be spending with you, I wish to do the same things that I have always done. Proclaim the great works of God, from Acts 2.11. Give witness to the gospel and serve the dignity of man. Here, may my stay be for the good of all Poles. May it help the great cause of peace, friendship and relations between nations, and social justice. He told the Poles that his heart was with them in their suffering, that they had a unique opportunity to be an example of Christ to the rest of the world in the way they handled their Soviet leaders. He lifted up their suffering, saying, I wish to venerate every seed that falls into the earth and dies and thus bears fruit. It may be the seed of the blood of a soldier shed on the battlefield or the sacrifice of martyrdom in concentration camps or in prisons. It may be the seed of hard daily toil with the sweat of one's brow in the fields, the workshop, the mine, and the factories. It may be the seed of the love of parents who do not refuse to give life to a new human being and who undertake the whole task of bringing him up. It may be the seed of creative work in the universities, the higher institutes, the libraries, and the places where the national culture is built. It may be the seed of prayer, of service to the sick, the suffering, the abandoned, all that of which Poland is made. He ended by saying, and I cry, I who am a son of the land of Poland and who am also Pope John Paul II, I cry on the vigil of Pentecost. Let your spirit descend, let your spirit descend and renew the face of the earth, the face of this land. To the press and media in Poland who were being pressured and coerced by the government to distort the message John Paul was bringing to Poland, he said, I would remind you of something Jesus Christ said when he was on trial for his life. It was the only plea he offered in his own defense. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Apply this, each of you, to your own life, and you will find it softens the pain and strengthens your courage in most of life's trials and frustrations. 
An editor of the underground Catholic newspaper in Poland said after the visit, Poland cannot be the same, even if the status, surface status quo is maintained. How do you deal with so much more hope, so much more self-confidence, all this new feeling of involvement and freedom? John Paul urged peace, not violence, in response to this new confidence. Several months after his visit, workers at a shipyard in Poland, fed up with the ill treatment from the communist government, began a peaceful strike with 21 demands. The first successful negotiation with the communist government was secured when these demands were met and an independent trade union was formed. The victory began a chain reaction that would create the solidarity movement and would, within the decade, bring an end to communist rule in Eastern Europe. The workers placed a photo of John Paul II at the shipyard on the gate to remind them to act, with, act peacefully and with dignity. The, the power that communism had and the hopelessness it held was broken. The regi regime would endure for another 10 years, but its power was gone. John Paul did not only intervene in Poland, but around the world, wherever a conflict existed. He sought to bring people together wherever there was discord, especially among Christians. He said that divisions among Christians are contrary to the plan of God. Whenever he arrived in a country, he would kiss the ground to express his conviction that the Holy Spirit was present and working in that land. He began the World Day of Prayer for Peace with leaders from all the religions of the world, not because he was universalist, because he wasn't, but because he recognized that the desire for peace is what all the religions have in common and what they could come together for. He also brought together the youth of the world. One of his lasting legacies is the establishment of World Youth Days, uh, biennial conferences, which he began in 1985 and that continue today. The first attracted 250,000 youths, and they only grew in popularity as time went on. The largest of his lifetime was the World Youth Day in Manila, where five to seven million youths attended the concluding mass. It was the largest crowd ever gathered uh, in that time. It was so large that he could only reach the stage by helicopter. This is what his biographer said. The Pope took young people seriously as persons, paying them the compliment of seeing them as people struggling with the meaning of life. When speaking with the young, he did not take the edge off a Christian message that he clearly lived himself. Perhaps most importantly, he did not pander to young people, challenging them to settle for nothing less than moral grandeur. At a time in Western history when virtually no other world figure was calling young people to bear the burdens and make sacrifices, John Paul touched the youthful thirst for the heroic and related it to the human search for God. Another such example of his humility came on May 13, 1981. The whole world held its breath as it watched four bullets strike John Paul at close range at St. Peter's Square. Ali Agha, an escaped prisoner who had already murdered someone else, 
had been plotting to kill John Paul for several months and had studied and calculated to find just the right spot to get a close shot at the Pope. He sat in the hot Roman sun all morning in that spot to be sure that he didn't miss. Although it was never proven, he was very likely hired by the Soviet Union to put an end to their problem. John Paul believed that it was the hand of Mary that guided the bullets through his body, missing all the major nerves and vessels, and ensuring his life would continue. His assailant couldn't believe that John Paul had lived. He didn't understand how this had not gone according to his plan. He showed no initial remorse and was sent to prison. John Paul still decided to forgive him and visited him in prison two years later to make sure he knew he was forgiven. Ali and his family were among the mourners when John Paul died. They had become friends in the years after the assassination attempt. In 1989, less than a month after the fall of the Berlin Wall, John Paul sat down with the new Soviet president, Mikhail Gorbachev. Gorbachev amazingly promised to legalize religion, ending decades of atheism and religious oppression. Gorbachev would say of John Paul, I think there has never been such an outstanding defender of the poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden. I think I can say with good reason that during those years we became friends, and probably many other people can say so too, because he was distinguished by warm, genuine interest in each person. About himself, John Paul would say, I am not the evangelizer of democracy. I am the evangelizer of the gospel. To the gospel message, of course, belongs all the problems of human rights. And if democracy means human rights, then it also belongs to the message of the church. When John Paul died at the age of 84 on April 2nd, 2005, the world mourned for him. Religious and political leaders from around the globe traveled to Rome to thank the man who had brought hope and love to the end of a violent and tumultuous century. I think it would have been pretty easy and understandable for Carol's story to end after the death of his family members. It would have been easy for him to be overwhelmed by the sadness of family members lost, a country torn apart, and a political situation with no hopeful end in sight. And I'm not sure if I could have kept going. But instead of falling into despair, Carol studied God's word, listened to his voice, and sought to live by it. He was formed by the richness and depth of his Catholic faith and by the faithful prayers of his father. He didn't listen to the warnings from the communist government, to the Nazis who threatened death. Sometimes he didn't even listen to his papal staff who told him to tone it down a little, to be a little more safe, travel less. He spoke up about suffering in hidden countries, the importance of religious freedom, about the value and potential of youth, and about the undeniable, inextinguishable, inexhaustible hope that only Christ could bring. He was an expert on these topics. His lived experiences, the depth of his prayer life, and his saturation in the scriptures gave him a joy, confidence, and hope that reflected out to the world and changed the outcomes of the 20th century. So wherever we find ourselves today, in all the difficult aspects of our lives, let us be encouraged to not move away from God, but rather lean into him, 
so that we too can bring hope to the world. I'd like to end with a prayer from John Paul himself. I leave you now with this prayer that the Lord Jesus will reveal himself to each one, each one of you that he will give you the strength to go out and profess that you are Christian, that he will show you that he alone can fill your hearts. Accept his freedom and embrace his truth and be messengers of the certainty that you have been truly liberated through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This will be the new experience, the powerful experience that will generate through you a more just society and a better world. God bless you. I love you I love you I love you more I express my love for you with the microphone. Microphone. That is stronger. God bless you and may the joy of Jesus be always with you.